So as we continue our series this morning in 1 Timothy, um, one of the biggest challenges, we know this because we've said it before, one of the biggest challenges when it comes to interpreting the scriptures is how we bridge the gap between the ancient culture and then the culture that we're living in today. So hermeneutics is this branch of study that is to do with how we interpret the Bible. So if you ever hear the word hermeneutics, um, this is the word we're looking for. Can I get the next slide up, Kerry? So, yeah, the, the main challenge of hermeneutics, how do we bridge this gap between the ancient and the current? Um, and there's two particular aspects that I want us to be aware of this morning in this area. Uh, when it comes to bridging the gap, there's two things that are big challenges for us. So one of them is how do we understand the original culture that these letters are written to or that the Bible context content is written to. And then we have this word in, in biblical study that we call, it, or, or this phrase, authorial intent. So what was the intent of the author in writing to the culture that he was writing? And a lot of the time, our problems in interpreting scripture come from, we don't accurately understand what the original author was meaning when he was writing to the people he was writing to. The second problem that we have, which is perhaps the one we deal with even worse, is understanding what our contemporary cultural issues are that we are then projecting onto the text of the Bible. So we have a way that we look at the world and we assume when we're reading the Bible that it's talking about the things the way we understand them and we project our understanding onto the text. So we've got two things that we have to do in the work of interpretation. One is understand the original context and what the author meant and the other is understand what lenses we're bringing to the Bible and how that affects how we read what's there. I bring this up and I think this is important because the passage that we're going to look at this morning, uh, you may read it and think it's an, an innocuous passage, but this is a passage that has caused a lot of pain in our culture and in cultures around the world and in the history of the church. And um, for many people in the room, uh, you're going to read this and it's not going to affect you, but there are churches where they look at this passage and they're deeply hurt and deeply offended and carry a lot of woundedness around this passage. So I want us to have these things in mind as we continue uh, this series in the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 6. So let me read this. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, the first two verses say, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves." Before I go any further, I just want to point out an ambiguity in here. Um, if you are, read, depending on what translation you're reading, we're usually using the NIV, and I don't normally point these things out, but, but the moment at the end, this, this translation says, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. So something's going on at the end of this passage, and it's ambiguous in the Greek, someone is benefiting from what is happening. There, there's a benefactor who is providing something and there's someone who's receiving. Um, it is ambiguous in the Greek who the benefactor is and who the recipient is. Um, and I want to highlight this because the NIV puts the benefactor as the master who is treating his slaves kindly 
every other translation translates it differently. And if you have the NIV, they'll have a footnote next to this passage with the alternate translation underneath. And I just wanted to switch this a little bit because, um, because I think it's important that, that the NIV is in the minority right here. And so other translations translate this. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are benefiting from the service of their slaves. So one of them, the slaves are benefiting the masters. The other, the masters, are the ones that are being extra kind to the slaves. Um, and I just think it's interesting to have that in mind as we go on through the rest of this. And I wanted to draw attention to it because there's lots of people sitting here using a different translation that may have gone, that's not what my translation says. Before we go further, I want to just remind us of where we're at in the book of Timothy, especially in chapter five and chapter six. We talked last week about the flow of this section of the book, all hinging around this word honor. And that's important for understanding what we're gonna talk about. So um, the word honor is the organizing part of chapter five into chapter six. And there are three verses that break this up. So under this command to have mutual respect and mutual honor for one another, Paul is then addressing Timothy to target three specific groups in the church that need some instruction about what it looks like to give honor. So in verse three of chapter five, he's instructing Timothy, make sure the church is gonna give proper honor and financial care and concern for the widows in that group. And 17 is gonna make sure that the church is giving proper respect and financial support to the elders of the church. And then at this part, um, he wants to make sure that the slaves, for whatever reason, are giving proper honor to the masters that they are serving under. It's important to remember as we go on that this is a context of mutual honor it's important to remember that it's in the context of addressing different groupings within the church. And I think that's helpful because this is not blanket statements so much as it is Paul through to Timothy addressing specific needs that exist in their church because of specific problems that are existing within each demographic. Um, Evidently, there are slaves in the church in Ephesus, and Paul, so Paul feels the need to address something about the attitude and, and the behavior of these slaves in this church. And I think it's also important to mention before we go on that Paul is not addressing or making statements about the value or the lack of value of the institution of slavery. So lots of people have an issue with this passage because they think this passage is saying that Paul is endorsing slavery and, and that's a good thing. Paul is not endorsing or speaking about the institution. He's addressing an issue that exists within their congregation. Does that make sense? Seeing some nods, okay. I just wanted to make sure that was clear before we go further on. I said at the beginning, in bridging the gap between the ancient culture and the contemporary culture, one of the works that we have to do, the second one in the list, is understand what perspective we have that we're then projecting onto the text of the Bible. And so I wanna share a couple of helpful commentators that just point out some of the things that we are often guilty of reading into a passage like this. So this is Osvaldo Padilla, who um, the Tyndale New Testament commentary series, this is his comments on this passage. It says, in contrast to American slavery, ancient slavery was not based on skin color. 
Furthermore, especially in the case of Roman households, many of the Greek slaves were educated and taught the children of elite Romans to speak and read Greek with its highly regarded classical literature among the Romans. Horrendous things have happened in our culture here and in our history uh, that were done under the, this banner of slavery. Um, we, it's easy for us to read a passage like this that's talking about slaves honoring their masters and assume that context is what Paul is addressing in the ancient context, forgetting that some of the slaves are wealthy, respected, highly educated tutors. Um, we, th- we can think of people like Daniel, um, who was raised up as a slave in Babylon and ends up becoming the right-hand man to the ruler of the kingdom. Um, so slavery in the ancient context is not the same as slavery as it existed in recent history here in the US. We have to be careful we don't read that in here if we want to understand correctly. Another commentator, this is the Pillar New Testament commentary series. Um, He says, since most middle-class urban households of the Roman world included household slaves, paranetic codes, so these household codes, typically included instructions regarding a slave's conduct and responsibility. The congregation addressed by the instructions of 1 Timothy evidently included household slaves, which the reader should expect since slavery was integral to the economy of Roman urban society. Many slaves were well-educated and exercised enormous influence in shaping the daily routines of the household. At the very least, Paul seems alert to the effect the gospel might have on working relationships between household slaves and their masters, which might in turn undermine the congregation's influence on the wider culture. There are many reasons. So again, contextually here, Slavery was typically people stolen from a foreign land and brought here into forced labor. Um, There were many other reasons in the ancient context that people were brought into slavery. Sometimes it was military conquest. And so people were taken from a land and they were brought in and they were given employment in the land as slaves. Um, Sometimes it was uh, someone voluntarily I mean, sometimes I wish we could do more of this in our country. I'm in debt, and I don't know how to get out of debt. I'm stuck in poverty. I'm going to sell my, my, myself to you as your slave for this season to clear my debts and get back to a place where my credit is zero, and I can then begin to move forward. Um, sometimes it was children being sold into slavery, um, and sometimes it was a humanitarian benefit for kids that were being orphaned rather than left on the streets with no one to care for them were brought into houses as servants in the house as a way of caring for them, providing for them, giving them meaningful work, knowing that slaves could work up society and end up being the right-hand guy to the leader of the nation. So we assume slavery is always unjust, but there were many situations in the ancient context where slavery as an institution could happen in a just and kind way um, rather than just being negative. So I bring all of that up because as we're looking at a passage like this, um, some people, we just ignore the fact that it's talking about slaves and masters altogether and we automatically assume it's talking about employers and employees. And some people look at this and have a real hard time with honoring the words of scripture because it seems to endorse something that has caused so much pain in history. So we've got to acknowledge that. 
So I'm saying we've got to be careful with what we're projecting into Scripture. I said one of the ways that we do that are, are what these commentaries are saying of projecting our uh, slavery here in the U.S. onto the text. I think the other thing that we do in projecting onto the text that is perhaps worse is that we assume because we live in Western privileged America that slavery doesn't exist anymore. And so this is not an issue anymore. If you look around online, the estimate right now is that there's 49.6 million people in slavery around the world. Uh, At least a quarter of those are children who have been sold into slavery. I uh, have gone back and forth to India a lot. I see these quarries um, where you have these women um, and these quarries, we've got a picture actually of some of these women. You have the next slide, Kerry. Um, yeah, you, you go to India, you, you can go to these quarries where people are born into these quarries, kids are raised in these quarries, they are slaves to the, the company that is running the quarry. Uh, the family has to uh, clear debt in order to get out of this, but they're not paid enough. They're, they're paid a meager amount of money and then charged more money to be able to work there. And they're stuck there. And generations are raised here. The life expectancy in these quarries is 11 years old because these kids are breathing in the dust from the granite. And what we don't realize a lot of the time, I, I, I don't want to get all... I don't know the word for this. Get, get on my soapbox a little bit. Um, but, but watching some of this, we don't realize when we go to Home Depot to buy a granite countertop that children who are 10 years old are dying in India to get us the granite that we want for a house. We live at a place where we are so disconnected um, from the reality that people face. We go to Fred Meyer, we buy our meat. We have no idea how the farmer was paid. We want affordable clothing, so we go to stores. We are oblivious to the fact that some of the clothes we were wearing were manufactured in sweatshops by child slaves on our behalf. You go uh, to buy chilies, you go to buy uh, pistachios. Uh, There are places that, like, again, my experience in India of these people that go out to the field for 14 hours a day without any protection, picking chili peppers and having their fing- the skin off their fingers burned off because of the chili and the scorching heat. And they do it so that we can walk into a store and buy chili peppers to put in our food without even thinking about it. So there is a lot of slavery happening around the world. Uh, we don't realize it because of the context that we live in. And so we read a passage like this and we think this isn't relevant. This doesn't matter anymore. This is archaic. Um, we don't want to read our safety Uh, and our experience not under slavery back into what was going on in the biblical text. So a little bit of heavy stuff there, um, but I want that in mind as we read this passage to help us understand what some of these people uh, who are encountering this passage would experience. Uh, What does this passage mean uh, to a, a family in India stuck in a quarry? What does this passage mean to a family in China stuck in a warehouse? Um... These passages have implications. People use this passage to discredit Paul. They use this passage to discredit uh, 1 Timothy. There are lots of scholars that think 1 Timothy shouldn't be in the Bible because they think this is saying things that are not kind. Um, They use it to discredit Paul and Timothy because it seems like in this passage the onus is on the slaves. These slaves, Paul is saying you're enslaved and it's your job 
to make sure you're treating your master with respect. In this passage, there is no mention of what the masters are supposed to do in relation to their slaves. So again, before we actually look at the passage properly, I want to remind us of other things that Paul writes about slavery to remember that he is not imbalanced in his approach to this stuff. So Ephesians 6, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. So just because you're high and mighty, he's not going to favor you if you mistreat someone under you. Household codes was a common part of writing in ancient Near Eastern literature. You expect whenever you encounter them talking about how to manage the household, is they're going to talk about husbands and wives, they're going to talk about uh, Parents and kids, they're going to talk about slaves. It was part of it. But what Paul uh, understands that we continue to need to understand today is that the gospel always subverts the broken systems of the world when we live it properly. Paul was in a day and age where he couldn't say, overthrow slavery. Because if they tried to do that, everyone would be killed. It would be like going to uh, North Korea today and just telling them, just overthrow. They don't have the freedom that, that, that we have over here. But Paul understands, and we need to understand, that when we live the gospel the way it's supposed to be lived, it subverts the system, and as we've seen in history, eventually led to the abolition of something that was horrendous. Um, right into Philemon. You've got this interesting story where uh, Philemon is this, this man in his household, his slave Onesimus runs away for whatever reason. Uh, the, the Onesimus ends up <clears throat> interacting with Paul and Paul takes him under his wing and uh, has uh, Onesimus comes to faith. Uh, Onesimus helps Paul in the work of the gospel. And then Paul writes this little letter to Philemon to say, here's how you should now interact with your slave. So Paul says, I'm sending Onesimus. And look at Paul's heart for this person. I'm sending Onesimus, who's my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to have kept him with me so that he could take your place and help me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him back as you would welcome me. Paul, right? How would you welcome Paul if Paul was here today? Welcome this runaway slave back like you would me and give him the honor that you would give to me. Paul clearly had in mind an upending of the institution of slavery as it existed then and did now. So with all of that context, let's look at these verses in uh, the beginning of Timothy chapter 6. And I want to look at the crux of the passage, and because this is what has the greatest implication for us as we live. So this whole section and the context of showing honor. 
1 Timothy 6.1 has this phrase in the middle. Slaves, I want you to show honor to your masters. Here's the phrase. So that God's name and the teaching may not be slandered. So Paul is giving these instructions through Timothy so that the reputation of God in the world and these sound doctrines that he has been asking them to uphold uh, would be honored and, and not looked negatively at in the world. So when Paul is writing these instructions, he is saying, based on what is going on in the church, I need you to behave a particular way because the gospel is at stake. And that phrase is really key for us today, right? There are ways that we need to make sure we are living our lives showing honor in the world because the gospel is at stake. How many of you have heard someone uh, say, I'm not interested in the church because I've seen what that person did? I've heard how that Christian communicated. I had a boss who was a Christian who was horrible. I see what happens in the news. I see the abuses that happen in the church. We're supposed to live rightly because if we don't, God's name and his teaching are slandered. That's the context of this. Um, And with these things, they always raise the self-reflective questions for me. In what ways are you slandering the name of God and slandering his teachings by the ways that you're living? In what ways does your lack of showing honor in places turn people away um, from the gospel? The passage addresses slaves in relation to two different groupings of people. One of them being these believing masters and one of them being the unbelieving masters. There are two very distinct motives that the passage gives for why they should behave the way they should in relation to the person that's over them. So the first one, um, the slaves are given instructions of how they've to honor their unbelieving masters. And that verse we just looked at makes it really clear that for them and for us in any context that we're in today, the process or or the goal of showing honor is missional. So believing slaves, when you're working for an unbelieving master, your attitude has a missional impetus to it. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Important point number one, he didn't say all those who are slaves, he said all those who are under the yoke of slavery, a word that really clearly, it's the word used to describe the burden put on an animal when it's doing its labor, it is not a positive word. So with that word, Paul is making clear that being under a yoke of slavery is not a desirable thing, not the goal that likens humans to cattle. What's going on in the church? The gospel is setting people free. The gospel is upending the social situation that they're walking in. Paul writes to the Galatian church, you know, in salvation, there's neither male nor female, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. We all become one in Christ Jesus. So you've got a situation where Um, The gospel is going forth in Ephesus. They believe probably a third of the city of Ephesus was slaves. The gospel is going out there and people are coming to faith. Uh, These slaves all of a sudden, they, they come to faith in Jesus. They're now back in their household interacting with their master. 
The ability for your master to come to faith in Jesus is now dependent on how you're gonna act in this place. If you look just like everybody else, your faith makes no difference. If you're belligerent and unkind, then people are gonna look at your faith and dismiss it. But if you go back to your master, and unlike everyone else in your household, you show them extra respect, you work extra hard, and the master's gonna go, what is that about this slave that makes them different? You create an avenue to be able to share your faith and hopefully see your master led to Jesus. And we know that if your master is led to Jesus, that should change the way he interacts with and treats you. Their love for Jesus should make them the best workers, the most kind workers, and the most honoring employees. I always think it's important in these sorts of passages, especially the household codes in scripture, that these are never uh, scriptures that endorse or tell people that when you are abused, it is your lot in life to stay there. Wife, submit to your husband. So if your husband's beating you, you gotta stay there because that's what honors the Lord. No, if your husband is beating you, your husband is not doing what the Lord is asking you to do and you need help and you need out of that situation as quickly as possible. Children, submit to your parents, but not if they're sexually abusing you. Not if they're neglecting you. Not if they're viciously attacking you with their words in those situations. You need help. You get out of there. You seek someone who trusts you trust and they come alongside you and get you help. Congregations submit to your elders, but not when they're guilty of spiritual abuse. Not when they're overlooking you and when they're power hungry and when they're narcissists. In those situations, we need to get out of those, those places. So this is never a blanket endorsement to live under abuse. Though sadly, where today we have many options when we're abused in the workplace to get out of that place, they did not have that freedom. And so Paul could have said to them, you know, but if your master is abusing you, get out of there as quickly as possible. They have nowhere to go. So the best option they have is to suffer and be united with Jesus in their suffering and hope that some other master that comes to faith may rescue them out of that place. Not a blanket endorsement to live under pain and suffering and abuse, but a call to missional living, deliberately submitting and showing honor, especially to people that didn't deserve it, and honor that the gospel would be seen to be fruitful in their lives and would hopefully lead them to Jesus. Toward unbelievers, the call was missional. Toward the believing masters, the call is familial. There's not a mission to lead these people to Jesus, but there's a call to allow the family nature of the church to govern how they live together. Um, those who have believed in masters should not show them disrespect just because they're fellow believers. Instead, you should serve them even better because these masters are now dear to you as fellow believers and they're benefiting from your service as a slave. I mentioned the benefactor conundrum before. Is it the, the masters are now these wonderful benefactors to the slaves treating them better? I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Typically in those cultures, the, the higher, more influential, wealthier person was the benefactor to those in need. I think Paul has flipped the script here and is pointing out to them, you have come into a place where you're now the one that gets to bless them. 
You've always been the one at the mercy of their blessing. Well, now you get to love them as fellow brothers, not just because they're the ones that are providing for you. And you get to realize that in serving them, you benefit them by blessing their household so that you can be blessed in return. And if the master is a believing master and doing what Paul is instructing them to do, then that believing master, as his life is being blessed, will be passing more of that blessing and care onto the people underneath them. They've moved into a new relationship. Uh, Some of the things that I was reading were, uh, I don't know if there's evidence of this, they were hypothesizing perhaps, that you have situations where in Ephesus you have these uh, elevated slaves who are highly respected and influential in the culture that come to faith. And through the way they're living their life, they then become an elder in the church. And then after a season of time, their master comes to faith. And now their master is a member of the church having to submit to the eldership of their slave. And now you've got a situation where, uh, well, now I get one up on you. How do I want to treat you in the church? Let's give you a little taste of your own medicine. You made it hard for me. Well, no, I'm not going to come and pray for your sick people. No, we're not going to bless this thing that you want. No, we're not going to give you time. It'd be very, it's a very realistic uh, situation that would have happened. So Paul has to say to them, don't show believing masters disrespect You're a believer, they're a believer. You're no longer master and slave, but brother and sister or brother and brother in the service of the kingdom. I feel like the implications of this are really obvious when we say, what does this mean for us today? But let's draw out some of these implications. We have, to, we have to, because of the context we're living in, move away from the slave and master language. But the way we've got to think about this is, is authority figures and subordinates. In whatever context this is, I think it's narrow to just say we're going to take that and bring it into the workplace. But what does this mean for us? What does it mean in the workplace? If you have a job and you're working for someone that's not a believer, whether they treat you well or not, Your obligation as a believer is to serve them as if you're serving Jesus and try and be the best employee that they can have so that by your actions, they will see that even though they mistreat you, that somehow you're kind to them. That even though they don't do the things that you're asking and they mistreat you, that you offer forgiveness to them. That even though they're laying down the law hard, you're willing to rise to it. And and when they're suffering, You go to them and you care for them and you pray for them and you offer to help. And in that place, they go, why would you do this? I've not been very kind to you. Why would you offer me this kindness? And you say, because of my faith, because of Jesus. It's the same if you're the boss. Like this context is is putting a lot of the onus on the slaves. But if if you're a believing uh, superior to uh, or line manager to other people in a workplace, you should be a better boss than everyone else in your workplace because of your faith in Jesus. You should care more for the people that you're overseeing. You should go further to bless them. You should be praying for them and checking in on them. And they should be looking at you going, there's something different about this person than all the other managers here. 
People should be clamoring to be under your leadership if you're a believing leader and people should be clamoring to have you on their team if, if you're a believing subordinate. But why is it that often I hear stories of my boss says he's a Christian. Uh, I, I, I've got a friend who um, works in an office and she's a believer and the other person's a believer and no one else in the office is a believer. And there are regular conversations that, that happen with my friends saying, why? Like you claim to live your, you claim to be a Christian and you live this way. She claims to be a Christian, but clearly is not. If my friend wasn't there, this office's only taste of Christianity is this horrible person claiming to be a Christian and mistreating people. Let's move it out of the workplace. There are other places where we have to think about this with people that, that are over us or that are under us. What about in real estate? A believing landlord versus an unbelieving landlord should be far kinder, more sensitive to the people living in their house. And as a tenant, Christian tenants should be the best tenants that any landlord ever has. That you take care of the property better than other people. That you're not gonna nickel and dime over every little expense. That you're like, you know, I know this is stressful for you. I'm gonna fix this for you. Uh, we should leave the places we live better than they were when we got there because we value Jesus. Think about it in the classroom. It, I, if you're a teacher in the room or have been a teacher in the room, God bless you. I don't know how people do it. And it sounds like it's getting harder and harder to be a teacher. Christian teachers should be the best teachers in our school. They should be the kindest to the co-workers, the most helpful to the administration, the more loving and supportive to the kids. But oftentimes those teachers are the ones that are said they're, they're too strict, they're judgmental, they're critical, they're rude. And then as kids in classrooms and students in colleges, Christian kids should be the ones that the teachers are looking at thinking are the best and the kindest and the hardest working and the most respectful. We can move on. We can think of uh, interacting with law enforcement officers. Christians should be the favorite people that they interact with. Christian police officers should be the most just because they understand the justice of God. TSA agents, we're heading to, to Honduras. How many times as a Christian have you gone through an airport and been unkind or short with someone in the line in front of you that cut you off going through the, the scanner um, when, when flights are delayed and you're on the phone to someone and you're being unkind to people? As Christians, we should be the ones that are kindest to the TSA agent as we walk through. And if you're a TSA agent, you should be the kindest TSA agent that we ever encounter as we walk through the airport. But something has gone wrong in our society when there is no quantifiable difference or qualitative difference between someone who's a Christian as a manager or someone who's a Christian as a worker and those who are of the world and don't know Jesus. We've got to do things differently. I thought about throwing up some videos at this point, affectionately called the Karen videos. You know the ones. 
some of them you're like, well, I, I don't want to trod on political toes, but we just came through a season where some of the videos were shocking, where people walk into a store and berate an employee and say, I'm a Christian, I have freedom. And then chew out people, spit in their face, throw things off the countertops. And I'm like, your fruit doesn't tell me you're a Christian, your words do, like, sort of. (laughs) But if that's someone's impression of what it is to be a Christian, they should want nothing to do with Jesus or the church. Our sense of entitlement, our mistreatment of people, the way I see some Christian people treat servers in restaurants. Has anyone in here been a server? Yeah, a few people that are servers or worked in that industry. I hear all the time that servers hate working Sunday because the crowd that comes in after church on a Sunday is the worst group of people to wait on. They are the rudest, the least kind, and the worst tippers. Something is wrong when we as Christians uh, are the ones that people fear and avoid rather than the ones that people come to for support and help. Something about how we live has to change. Something about the way we show honor has to be different when it's with believers so that we express the family bond that we have as believers of Jesus working together, united under him for the sake of the kingdom, teaming up to reach our co-workers with the gospel and to unbelievers missionally so that everything that we do to the best of our ability is pointing them to the transformative hope of Jesus. So the charge this morning, just like Paul said to those slaves, is that you would show honor to those over you and those under you so that God's name and his teaching would not be slandered through your life so that many would come to faith in Jesus. Let me pray. God, the Bible at times is complicated. Um, The world we live in is messy. Uh, God, we need your wisdom Uh, to understand how we uh, provide the right apologetic for passages like this and show your heart behind it. Um, God, we need help, again, to be people who show honor, that as employees, that we would live in a way that points those around us to Jesus. As bosses and company owners and managers, that we would love and support and care for the people in our circles better than others. God, it's clear in scripture that the height of your love is love for the enemy. Lord, that you were one who was willing to endure intense suffering that people would know God and come to saving knowledge. God, as believers, it's in the places where things are hardest where the relationship is most difficult, uh, where the circumstance is most unpleasant, that we have the biggest opportunity to show the way of Jesus. And so God, we need you to strengthen us uh, to do that. We need you to convict us of the places where our behavior does not bring honor 
to your name. And God, would you make us as individuals, as families, and as Arise Church, a place where your name and your teaching, rather than being slandered, are upheld and modeled to the world in the way that displays the character and the care of Jesus so that people are wowed by him and brought into your presence. God, we need you. So move in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's do what we've been doing. Um, the question, turn to some people next to you. What is God stirring in you in response to this this morning? And after that, we will worship.